This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays Baseball. Drilled to center field and deep. Back on it is to the track, to the wall. It's gone! Kevin Longoria with a two-run home run to straightaway center, and he gives the Rays a 6-4 lead here in the ninth. Coming up, we'll recap the action from this past week, take a look around Major League Baseball, and sit down for in-depth interviews with the biggest names in the game. The 2-2 now. Check swing on the slider. Strike three. Chris Archer jumps off the mound and bounces his way to the dugout. Here's your host, Neil Solons. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our show, and happy Easter. Today on our program, you'll hear from Tim Beckham and learn a bit more about what Jackie Robinson meant to him the day after Jackie Robinson Day across the majors. We'll visit with Mark Topkin in Boston, chat with Mitch Lukovich about the race farm system, discuss the American League with Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports and MLB Network, and talk with the dean of MLB writers in Tampa Bay resident Hal Bodley. We continue with This Week in Race Baseball. Our featured guest this week is one Tim Beckham. Tim, we're still early in the season, but tell me, Opening day was kind of special for you, I would imagine. It was your first opening day start. What was that like, and did it feel any different? Yes, it did. Of course it did. Um, something I've been waiting on for, uh, not waiting on, but um, preparing myself for, for my full career. I mean, high school, recreation ball, you know. I mean, growing up as a kid, we all want to make it to the major leagues, and um, we all want to be the guy. Well, I mean, it's, it, it felt great, man. It, it felt great. It really did. And um, a lot of, I won't say relief, but um, I felt accomplished. I did. Did you have any extra family or friends here? And if so, who came out for you? Yeah, I had um, my dad, his wife, um, my brother, and a couple of my best friends I grew up with that's witnessed me uh, grind throughout my whole whole life, man, and get to this spot. And they were happy for me. So it was a great feeling. Obviously, those folks, a lot of them are from either from or still are in Griffin, Georgia. What does that community mean to you? It means the world, man. And um, I wouldn't be who I am today without everything I've been through growing up and um, without the buddies that I had with me growing up. And um, Yeah, and um, that means words can't even, I can't even put into words what, what, what the city of Griffin meant to me. So, um try to give back when I can and look out for the younger the younger guys coming through and want to keep keep thriving and keep elevating. You in fact I think we talked about this off air a bit. You're working on a foundation or starting that? Yes, yes, I am working on a nonprofit. So uh that's in the making. So um hopefully I mean it's a it's a lot that goes involved with that. And hopefully next season by next season it'll be be up and going and um we'll do some big things with it. I want to talk about some of the things that you're doing in the community because it was right before the season you helped out with over at Campbell Park, right across from the ballpark. And mm-hmm. to see the smiles on kids' faces that they were getting a new field, I mean, what did you see and what did it remind you of as a kid? For me, I mean, just to have a professional, another professional 
player and to be able as a kid to be able to interact with a professional player is something I wish I had growing up and um the fact that I didn't have that growing up and I have access and I have the um what do you want to call uh presence I have right now as a major league baseball player I want to make sure that they know it I was in their shoes at one point and I was that I was that kid that was watching all the guys on TV, wanting, wanting to be a Major League Baseball player, and I just want them to know that it's possible. And um, I was them at one point. So keep going, man, and keep elevating. You know, you have had or you have some pretty good teammates on this year's group. I was curious because he's here for the first time, and I've heard so many good things from Kevin Cash and players about Ricky Weeks. What has he meant to you so far? Oh, it's a great, great guy to have around the clubhouse, man. Great, great guy to look up to, his work ethic. His uh, thought process, everything that comes with 11, 12-year 12-year veteran in the major leagues, um, he's living proof of it. And um, to pick his mind every day and to go back and forth with him in the cages, it it, it definitely benefits me a lot. And I'm more than happy to have him here, and it's a blessing to have him here. How would you describe your relationship? Is he like big brother? Is he a friend? Is he, you know, like, you know, how would you describe it? I mean, yeah, still, I mean, we went through spring, and uh, it's kind of a, you know, it's not not mentor. Uh, it's, we're, all, we're all brothers here, you know. We're, we're all brothers as a team, and we all should be our brother's keeper. And um, with that being said, yeah, I feel like he's a big brother to me. Yeah. That's kind of nice because you had, I mean, people don't remember this, but you had your brother drafted the same year you were drafted and he got to play with you. And I would imagine you guys are pretty tight still, and he has a big impact on you. For sure, for sure. My brother's doing tremendous things back home as well. As when I'm in the season, he he's back home uh, doing doing his um he's coaching actually coaching the high school, giving lessons. And recently, a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, he branched off to his own travel ball program. And this off season, he got to uh, move into move into a good building, and he's going to be able to work work with kids more often so that's a that's a blessing as well so to be able to stay around the game of baseball and have the patience to work with the kids and he's gotten some kids drafted now and he's gotten some kids signed division 1 so again i mean that's it's a blessing to be able to have that impact on these on these kids lives and uh just to give access let them know that we're here I'm here for him. My brother's here for him, and I want everyone around my city, city of Atlanta, Griffin, to to know that and um, keep elevating, man, and keep producing athletes. This airs on Jackie Robinson weekend. What does it mean, albeit for one day, to wear number 42? I know you wear number one on a regular basis. To be able to put 42 on my back, (laughs) then again, that's something I can't can't even that's a feeling I can't even put into words everything that he's been through everything that he endured and um to be able to wear 42 man mean, means the world to me and uh, I want to make sure that he would know that and if I if I had if I had to, something to say to him I mean I would thank him for everything that he's done and the resiliency that he put forward the game of put towards the game of baseball and um he paved the way for us and He's my idol, and that's probably the favorite movie and best movie I've ever watched was the movie 42. If you had a chance to ask him a question, what would you ask him, or what would you want to know? 
that's that's a good question. Um, it's a lot that goes through my mind when you when you say that. I mean, everything that he's been through. <laughs> How'd you do it, man? How did you do it? How did you last? I mean, that's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> yeah. To a question to ask him, man. How how did you do it? How did you do it? And I would definitely thank him for everything that he's been through. And I think baseball and probably humanity is appreciative in that regard. You know, you mentioned Atlanta, and um, obviously you feel very strongly about Griffin. But also, Atlanta, you're a huge Falcons fan. I mean, people don't know you went to the Super Bowl this year just to, to watch. Yeah, what was that like? Was that your first Super Bowl you saw in person? That was my first Super Bowl I saw in person. And to have my Dirty Birds there, it was <laughs> it was thrilling, man. And uh, to be at a game, the environment is unbelievable. And um kind of makes me think about when we're at home well when we were at home in October and watching watching buddies play watching buddies play for the World Series and seeing the fun that they had it was it was crazy man I mean watching the Super Bowl it brought back memories of that and um that's something I want to do that's something everyone on the team should want to do is uh make it to the playoffs playing the World Series and win the World Series if you were and obviously you love baseball if Tim Beckham were a football player, what position would he play? And who's your favorite on the Falcons? I would, uh, well, I played quarterback growing up, and I played a little wide receiver. I was, um, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't bad. I was pretty, I was pretty good at both. Um, I would think I would want to be the quarterback. <laughs> I, would, I would want to be the quarterback. I would want to lead the team to Super Bowl. And um, my favorite player on the Falcons is. Julio Jones, because he is a freak of nature, and um, he is a lethal weapon for the Falcons, and I'm looking forward to next season. I just figured you'd take the quarterback. <laughs> I definitely love Matty Ice. I definitely love Matty Ice, man. He's a heck of a quarterback and had his best year, career year last year, and um, we got a lot to look forward to next year. Yes, you're right, and hopefully a lot forward to this year with this team. I'm curious, what do you do to unwind? I, I remember I was talking about it. You, you still like to fish a lot, and, and do you do that much during the season and on an off day? Does it help? Yeah, I mean, I just like to get away from the game of baseball. I mean, if I, I pick up pick up a book and um, pick up a book, read, read a book, or talk to my dad on the phone, talk to my mentors on the phone, just something to get away from the game of baseball. And once I'm here, I'm here, and – my full attention is with the club, with the team, and um, we want to win the ball game every night. We total feel. Tell me, five years from now, where do you want to be? What do you want to? What do you want people to be saying about Tim Beckham? He's the hardest worker I've ever came across, and um, never took never took anything for granted. And And just know that I'm a gamer, man. Like when I toe the line, I chalk the line. I'm, I'm a gamer. I want to win. I want to. I'm a competitor. I want to compete. And um, for them to, what I want to take away from people that doesn't know me or have different thoughts about me, um, just he's the hardest worker I've ever came across. How much do you like the group you're with now? It's early in the year, I know, and you just hit spring training in a short time of games. But how much do you like this group? I love this club, man. I mean, clubs we had in the past, I've loved, I've loved those clubs as well. And um, the chemistry we have right now is hard to come by. And um, it's a beautiful thing to see. It's a beautiful thing to see. And like you said, now it's super early. It's, I think the Rays fans have a lot to look forward to.
Well, hopefully a lot to look forward to with you this year. We certainly appreciate some time on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Neil. Tim Beckham joining us on This Week in Rays Baseball. We continue right after this on the Rays Baseball Network. Welcome back. Neil Solon's with you on This Week in Rays Baseball. Time to take a look at things from the minor league side. It's a season about a week and a half in, and joining us is Mitch Lukovic, the organization's director of minor league operations. Mitch, thanks for joining us, and happy Easter. Great, Neil. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, you guys are, are underway. Um, it's still very early in the season. Let's begin at the top with Durham because uh, that was uh, a group that uh, MILB.com rated one of the more prospect-laden teams in minor league baseball. What's your take on the group and the talent that's assembled? Well, the group's young, and the group has skill, and that's always a, a good combination, Neil. So when you have uh, both talent and both youth, um, I think that bodes well for the future. There, there's always a learning curve um, with young players getting to the next level, but I think eventually the skill catches up and then they take over the league, and we're, we're looking forward to that happening. Some people look at AA as a separator level, but AAA is kind of difficult too with the veterans. What's the greatest challenge, let's say, for kids like Willie Adamas, Jake Bowers, just 21, learning at that level? Well, you're facing, you're facing former major league pitchers. I mean, Mike Pelfrey pitched the other night against us, and you're seeing a lot of veteran seasoned players that maybe um, they have major league experience but are not there right now. That, that uh, Willie Adamas and Jake Bowers and Casey Gillespie in this league for the first time are competing against. Well, you, you know, Neil, if you want to be a big leaguer, um, mm-hmm. you have to compete against the best, and, and they're competing against Good competition here in AAA as they're earning their stripes before they get to the major league, to our major league team. Bowers, Gillespie, Adamas, where do you want to see each of those kids grow this year? Well, they're all wonderfully mature young men. So when when you have Willie and Jake, they're league age 21. Casey's a little bit older. They're there mentally. Now it's the daily grind of AAA baseball. They're one step away from the big league. So... You know, they're going to see 2-1 sliders. They're going to see, you know, 2-0, you know, sliders. They're going to see a different type of complement of pitching that they're going to see in the big leagues, and how do you handle it? Can they handle some of the failure, keep their mental tenacity, move on to the next day, build from it, and move on? But, but, but all these kids are, are right where they need to be. They're mentally, they're mentally strong. Now they've got to learn the league and uh, take on the competition. Going into this season, I would say there was a lot of question about who would be the starting pitchers in Durham because you had so many options. It kind of worked itself out with the injury leading Austin Pruitt to make the big league club. Jamie Schultz moved to the bullpen and then injured. We'll get to him and Jose De Leon injured. How good has the rotation been this first couple times through, and, and how talented is that quintet? Well, pitching has always been a strong suit, and uh, it, it, we're not short of that here, here in Durham. And these young guys uh, pitch well, the quality of their pitches, the stuff, the location. And, and that's like you, you mentioned, that's minus Jamie Schultz has a, a little groin injury, and it's better um, this time than the last time he injured it. We don't look for him to be out too, too long. Jose DeLeon, who has a, a wonderful arm, with sideline with a little, little soreness. And, uh, you know, he's in Port Charlotte, and we're going to build him up so he can come back and start at five innings here in Durham. So those guys can come back and even help the, the current starting rotation 
The area that I look at at your double-A club, Mitch, are the two catchers. You've got Nick Shufo who's trying to take a major step forward after being in the Arizona Fall League last year and Justin O'Connor who's coming off injury. You got to see those kids. How far have they both come along, and what are you hoping for each of them? Well, we're hoping for great things because Justin O'Connor still has that wonderful skill set with bat speed, arm speed. He's really good behind the plate, and it's just good to see him behind the plate. He's been often injured. Um, no fault of his own, uh, but things happen. And certainly Nick Shufo, who's a young high school catcher, first time in double-A, has matured physically and mentally, and, and he's gotten off to a good start. So we're excited about both. Let's see how it all plays out. But um, they both have really good ceilings, Neil. So I would think, does Justin Williams, who's playing in the outfield in Montgomery, he was in the Fall League too. Where do you want to see him take the next step forward? It's always about consistency at the plate. Let's not give up at bats. It's all about, you know, looking over a baseball, pitch selection, swinging at strikes, not at balls. Sometimes these young hitters get themselves out. And I think we're looking for him to make strides in that area, but he can hit a, a ball as hard as anybody in our organization. He plays a good right field with a right field arm. And so it's a matter of maturation at the plate, looking over the baseball a little bit better, and uh, good things can come his way. You know, I think also intriguing, we got to see at least one of them in, in Major League Spring Training and the other came up from Minor League Camp, is a couple of potential bullpen arms. Diego Castillo was in the Fall League. Jose Alvarado was in the WBC. How much talent do each of those kids have? Because it's, it's not – first, they come from your Latin American programs. Two, these are kids who, you know, you're, you're potentially raising some potential bullpen arms with each. Absolutely. They both have major league arms. Jose Alvarado has thrown as high as 100, and Diego Castillo as high as 98. But, but what we're seeing is more strikes. You can throw 100. If you don't throw it over the plate, it's an unusable tool. And these kids are growing up. They're competing on the double-A level. They have big league stuff. It's a matter of them learning the strike zone, pitching in the strike zone. And, and when they do, you know, we look forward to them helping our major league club uh, one day as well, Neil. As we move down to the A-ball level, you know, your Charlotte club I know got off to a, a slow start during the course of uh, the first week and change. Um, but who are some of the guys that you think really have a chance to shine or guys who, you know, you, you had Jay Cronenworth repeat. I know he's gotten off to a good start. You have a couple of kids who were traded uh, from Cleveland, Nathan Lukes who's off to a pretty good start there. Who are some of the guys you think have, have let's say, some high ceilings? Well, you mentioned you mentioned Cronenworth. You mentioned Nathan Lukes. Dalton Kelly we got in a trade as well. Kevin Palo. But where we jumped two players from Hudson Valley last year, their first year, um, Bolt and Jake Fraley, mm -hmm. um, those are big jumps. So they're skipping Bowling Green, taking on the challenge. We feel they have the skill um, to, to compete in that level. They have to make adjustments. A lot of times you get to the next level, there's an adjustment period, and that's what we're finding out with Charlotte. But when you look at the overall skill, even though we got off to a, a short start, we're happy with the skill there, and those kids stand out for me. You had a bit of an outfield glut, too, because you had a lot of prospects who were ready for Bowling Green, right, as well. You had Eliardo Cabrera, Jesus Sanchez, Garrett Whitley, and Josh Lowe. So, you, I mean, I guess the college kids are probably the best ones to see if they can make that jump. Mentioned with uh, our young outfield in Bowling Green. They're all legitimate prospects. They all have skill. We have two number one picks in Garrett Whitley and Josh Lowe. 
but Jesus Sanchez and Eliardo Cabrera are two of our finest Latin hitters in our organization. These kids are 19. They're experiencing full-season baseball for the first time. And with that, when we talked about Boat and Fraley jumping over that league, these kids have been at a four-year you know, program in, mm-hmm. at Nebraska and LSU and have the reps in very good college ball um, conferences that allow them and play summer ball to allow them to skip the Bowling Green level. And this gives the opportunity to four highly talented young outfielders to get there at bats. You mentioned that Bowling Green Club and the talent of the outfielders, but it's not only there, too. I mean, you've got some real talented high-level kids on the infield, including Lucius Fox, who you got from the Giants, and Adrian Rondon, one of your biggest signs out of Latin America. Well, that's for sure. And you look at Rondon at league age 18, Lucius Fox at 19, and those outfielders, a couple of them are league age 19. It's really rare when you have um, those type of players in a, in a full-season club, and we're excited about it because their skill matches the league and they're maturing as young men, and it's hard to play this game if you – you're not a mature young man, and, and the development is happening, and we're happy where they're at right now. It, how important is patience with that level especially? Because, I mean, you're committed to these kids. You obviously believe they have a very bright future, but there's certainly, I would, I would expect, especially first half of the year, where it's colder in the Midwest League in some parts, there are going to be some growing pains. Well, there is growing pains. There, there is no doubt. But, you know, I like when they train in cold weather. I wouldn't want a young Latin player to experience Yankee Stadium in April for the first time, uh, you know, and, and never had played in cold weather where our Bowling Green Club gives them the opportunity. If our Durham Club gets to Toledo, I like that training aspect. Every level when you have a player get there for the first time, there are growing pains. And it's just not lickety-split and everything works perfect. But every day, we're on that field early. We're working on certain things. It's a long season. Take our time. But if you don't have patience, you, you, you can run into some real issues. And if you panic on players when they do not have success and it becomes negative, nothing works out. Patience, being positive, working at it, you have a chance. And when you have good kids that like to work and have great attitudes, it just makes it that much more easier. We certainly appreciate having Mitch Lukovich, Director of Minor League Operations for the Rays, on the show today. Good stuff from him. Let's turn our attention back from Boston at Fenway Park is Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. Mark's had a marathon schedule of sorts. Topper, thanks for a few minutes. No problem, Neil. Uh, for for this club right now, today, I guess officially, Jake Odorizzi now on the DL. Nine players on the DL for a club that health was really important. We're 12 games into the season. I mean, I think probably to be at 500 is a positive step for this group. No, I think you're right, Neil, and I think that's a fair assessment and, and talked with Kevin Cash about that just a few minutes ago and the idea that they don't have their shortstop, they don't have their second-best reliever uh, in Brad Boxberger, obviously Matt Duffy we're talking about. Now they their number two starter is going to be out for at least a couple of starts. Uh, they don't have a guy they expected to bat in the middle of their order in Colby Rasmus, and that appears to be getting a little muddled as to when he's going to even restart his rehab assignment. So, you know, for arguably now four fairly key guys uh, that they were not expecting to be out. They knew Wilson Ramos would be out, but some of these other guys they did not expect to be out. So I, I do think 500 is somewhat of a, a you know, a, not a success, but at least an achievement to this point. And obviously we've talked on and on about how tough this schedule is in April uh, that they have these first month, month and a half or so. No doubt. And and that doesn't even include the fact that on this on this trip, you know, you had what Malik Smith go on the DL, Ricky Weeks get banged up. 
I mean, even the backups to the backups, and, and you mentioned Durham, Jamie Schultz, Jose De Leon, Taylor Guerrero. That's a lot of depth that's been hurt as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. In fact, the news today was that Taylor Guerrero, they still don't know how severe the elbow injury is. It obviously doesn't sound good for someone who's already had Tommy John surgery once. Uh, one of the guys that, you know, a first-round pick they were expecting to maybe get to the big leagues at some point this year. Uh, they did move Brent Honeywell up from AA to AAA. That was my nice Neil Nugget of the day, by the way. Uh, thanks mm -hmm. for the hashtag idea. But I do think that's a good sign in that, you know, Honeywell's probably pitched well enough last year and then even the first couple times out this year to get to AAA. So that does give them a little bit of depth there. But, no, you're right. I mean, Jamie Schultz is a guy that might have been, you know, called up today instead of Chase Whitley, you know, to help the bullpen out had he not been hurt. So, it is affecting the Rays at both the big league level and the AAA level as far as the injury situation. And I think more than that, because you have right now a full 40-man roster, when you have guys in the DL at the AAA level, you know it really hampers you that much more because if you need to make a move, I mean, that's another spot on the roster that's kind of held up without it really being effective. Well, exactly, and that's you know what kind of led to Shane Peterson getting here uh, the other day. When Malik Smith was hurt, you know, you start kind of thinking through, and usually a team, especially you know, early on, is going to want to go with 40-man guys to not have to bump someone off the roster or make another move. And there's only two position players at Durham on the 40-man roster, and that, that seems kind of startling. I mean, maybe there's other teams that are similar situation, but to have only Kurt Casale and Willie Adamas there, I mean, I actually wondered if they'd bring Adamas up use him as a backup, start Robertson at short, use Beckham in the outfield. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, gymnastics they were maybe having to go through, and then they obviously made an easier move, bring up a lefty hitter, Shane Peterson. They had the one bit of flexibility left in putting Brad Boxberger on the 60-day DL, but I'm not sure there's another move that they can make unless Duffy were to be set back further that they can do without having to get rid of somebody if they had to add someone else. Which certainly makes next, I don't know, I think the hope is with Jake Odorizzi, it's 10 days. Did you get a further read from him today in the clubhouse? Have he felt any better or worse after yesterday's hamstring situation yeah, no change up. from what i could tell no change from what i could tell he's still optimistic it's just going to be those 10 days which you know because there's no off day in here is still going to be two starts i mean the 10 day dl has made it easier for teams to make quicker decisions there's no doubt about that instead of waiting two or three and then you know being shorthanded and then deciding if they needed to put a guy on the shelf or not but yeah in this case because there's no days off he'll miss two starts and you know, one thing Kevin Cash said today reading between the lines was, you know, it's not automatic who's going to make that start on Thursday. It sounds to me like if they use Chase Whitley heavily today or tomorrow, then Erasmo might be the guy to make that start. Or they could send Whitley out and bring someone up to make that start. If they don't have to use Whitley, he could possibly make that start. I mean, I would think even though Erasmo is probably going to give them a better chance as a starter, he also is probably the more trusted reliever. So it's, it's going to be a little bit of a tough call either way. It, does it put a little more pressure, and, and it was nice to see him win in Boston, but does it even put a little more pressure even for a short period on Chris Archer to you? Well, and, and probably at Alex Cobb because, you know, Odorizzi is kind of that guy that pitches between them for a reason because, you know, they know Archer can be really dynamic. They know Cobb, you know, they hope he can get deep in games, but there's always going to be a little bit of a concern at least this first month or so as he gets back in his first full year. And Odorizzi's a guy that, you know, they know they're going to get six or seven innings or very least six innings from, and they kind of use the bullpen you know, in advance and afterward accordingly. So it does put a little bit more pressure on everybody in the rotation. And, and you know, like I said, we'll see whether come Thursday that could be Erasmo Ramirez, which takes somebody out of the bullpen. It could be Chase Whitley, or it could be somebody coming up from AAA. And I know you, you mentioned it today. I think we all believe there's no moral victories in baseball. But I, I thought it was a positive the way they handled the situation yesterday because it would have been – I think, as you mentioned in your story today, fairly easy to kind of fold the tents against Chris Sale afterwards. Yeah, and, and you know, I know, you know, we love Twitter and we love the instant feedback we get from everybody and, and had a few people, you know, 
uh, not agreeing with the point of my article, saying, hey, they still struck out 15 times, they left the bases loaded, they left a situation you know, on, on the bases in the eighth inning, how can you say this was a good day for the Rays? And my point was it could have been a very bad day, and the fact that they were in that game and literally into the last pitch I thought was significant. And, and look, is that going to matter come June, July, August? I guess we'll see. But given what we just talked about, all the injuries, you know, even just kind of crazy schedule they've been playing with all these weird day games and game times, and there's no routine yet, I thought, to me, the Rays showed a lot yesterday in keeping that game the way they did against a really tough pitcher who was really on. No doubt. Um, you were chatting with Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. And, Mark, uh, you know, I want to make sure we also mention your Sunday piece today because tomorrow is the Boston Marathon, the rare 11 a.m. day game, the first for the Rays since the Boston Marathon bombing. What was the biggest takeaway for, for you in doing a piece like this? Well, it's interesting because, you know, you, you kind of – we go through so much when you cover a baseball team. It's a great job. There's so many opportunities to do all these great things, go all these great places. But, it, you know, some days it kind of one day follows another, one day it follows another. And that was really something that stood out to me was being here. And, you know, there was obviously a little bit of fear that day of not knowing what was going to happen next. I mean, nobody was able to say at that point, hey, this was a bomb. It was an isolated thing. It was this, you know, in this spot, that's it. The rest of the, you know, city's fine. I mean, nobody knew what else was going to happen. And it was just a matter for me of trying to sort out the priorities of, you know, obviously your personal safety situation, your professional responsibilities, you know, getting that day story and the logistics of how, how to get, you know, how to get out of Fenway Park. We had been told at one point they were going to evacuate it. I've got a giant suitcase with me. It was a long road trip and just trying to figure out all these things and, and juggle all that and obviously get word to family and to Sue and everybody that, you know, I was okay. So there was a lot going on. And it was just, I think, a matter of, you know, kind of processing what to do and trying to relay as much information as we can and capture the scene. And, and obviously, you know, I, I hopefully redid that in the piece today in the Tampa Bay Times, and, and as well as with some of the players, Evan Longoria, Alex Cobb, and we have a podcast up that has those guys on it, as well as Brian Anderson, and, and give you kind of a, a 360 uh, take on the whole thing. Multimedia Mark, now doing his own marathons, not necessarily at the finish line today, but uh, <laughs> he'll be here for the coverage of the game. I saw your photo. Yes, Neil. In fact, uh, had you been there, I'm sure you would have also crossed the finish line with Dave Wills and I carrying a bag of chips as he did last night. I might have done it in speedier fashion, but uh, I appreciate a few minutes on the show today, and thanks very much for coming by. All right, Neil, anytime. Always a highlight of my week. You got it. Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times joining us from Boston, and again, recommended reading his work on uh, the, the fourth anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing and the Rays being there. Now, coming up on the show, you're going to hear from Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports and MLB Network, plus Hal Bodley of MLB.com will join us. We continue in a moment. You are listening to the Rays Baseball Network. Welcome back to This Week in Rays Baseball. I'm Neil Solons. In the first week of the season, the Rays played against the Yankees on ESPN and on Fox Sports 1. And before that game, I had a chance to speak with Ken Rosenthal, of course, the well-respected reporter for Fox Sports and MLB Network. And I asked Ken, how he sees the AL East, especially now with each team missing some important piece due to injury early on. It's a good observation, and I expect this trend to continue. Players get hurt every year, and that's the one thing you can never anticipate or project. And certainly the teams that have the most depth are the most able to withstand it. We saw it with the Rays last year. They lost some key guys. They fell apart. And while you don't want to use injuries as an excuse, that was an excuse. It was a real legitimate excuse. So... To me, the Red Sox are the team to beat. They're not a flawless team. They're not a team that I see running 100 games. But that position club that they feel is really good. And when you've got Sale and Porcello, and at some point I would assume Price comes back, it's a formidable-looking group. So I like them the best. The Blue Jays, they're good. I don't know how good. I'm not sure about their moves in the offseason. They're a different team without Encarnacion. 
The Orioles always play better than I think they're going to play, and the Rays always seem to play worse than I think they're going to play. Now, that's my observation. I fall in love with them every year. This year, I like them again, and I do think they can compete. They just need everything to kind of go right. Tell me why you like them. I like them because of their starting pitching. And last year, I really liked them. I thought with that starting pitching, they'll be in every game. They'll find enough offense. Well, it all kind of fell apart. Okay. But same thing this year. They have the same potential. And I've noticed some comments in the media and by some players, well, we've had this potential. We have to do it now. And I would agree with that. It's time. So between Archer and Odorizzi and Cobb and everyone that they've got running out there, they have the potential to be a very competitive club every day. And if opening day was any indication, the offense could be more interesting as well. And a lot also depends on the guy who plays center field. Missing him last year for two months, it was a 20-under club while he was gone, and it was a 500-club while he was there. Right, and that's something that they've talked about. And again, no, one, no team makes excuses and says, oh, that's why. But the reality is when you lose that guy in center field, Kevin Kiermaier was one of the best center fielders most of us have ever seen. It makes a huge difference in your run prevention, in your pitching, and it changes the face of the team. And the fact of the matter is the American League is the deeper league right now. So when you lose players of that ilk in this league, there are no times where you really can take off other than the White Sox and Twins. Not many clubs are truly rebuilding. That's true. And even the Twins look like they may be a little bit better this year. So you're right. You can't take off. And I had a nice talk with Matt Duffy today. I remember covering him with the Giants in the playoffs. He did some really special things. The Rays have not seen him yet. Their fans have not seen him yet. This guy is a good player. And if he returns to health, he's an asset, and he'll be helpful to them. So, again, these things, they all have to kind of fit together for them to be where they want to be. Well, you cover so much on a national level. When Bruce Bochy says a guy's one of his five favorite players, to me, that says a lot. And there were reasons for that that were not hyperbole. And it wasn't that Matt Duffy hit like Barry Bonds. It wasn't even like he fielded like Brandon Crawford. But he's a winning player. He did some things base running, I remember vividly, as a pinch runner to win a game for them. He has it. He's a good baseball player. And we haven't seen him at shortstop, but I imagine he'll be quite fine there. You like the Red Sox, as you mentioned, in the American League East. If there is a team to, that you think is going to best contend with them or has the best chance, who is it? It's an interesting question. The Blue Jays. Now, I question whether their rotation will be as good as we expect it to be because Sanchez with the innings, Stroman coming back and having a pitch a full season. I'm just not totally convinced. Now, you can say that about any team. It's kind of an unfair criticism. But beyond that, New Encarnacion. They're going to ask an awful lot of Steve Pierce, who you guys know from the Rays. Good player, but often hurt. So, I just don't see their offense being quite the same. Tulo's a year older, Bautista's a year older. It's not a young club. Kendris Morales is not a young player. I'm just not sure about them. Baltimore, I just, I don't know how they do it every year with their rotation. And this year, especially with Tillman starting out the year hurt, it's that much more of a challenge. Yes, it's good. And we'll guess we'll get further tests for Buck and Dan Duquette in terms of how they manage the roster. Beyond the Red Sox in the American League, Cleveland, do you think right now is the team to beat even without Kipnis? I do think that, and we just saw in their opener a little bit of what they're going to be able to do with Encarnacion hitting the big home run. They've got the great bullpen. Obviously, there's some concern about carryover from last year and all the innings that the relievers threw at the end, and the starters for that matter, Kluber foremost among them. But they have a lot of 
really good parts. And they also have a good motivation, as all teams do, but they have a different kind of motivation. And I just expect that once Kipnis gets back and assuming Carrasco's okay, that they're going to be really good. And who do you like out west? Houston, Seattle, Texas? Houston, and it's funny, all of those teams, like the teams in the east, have their flaws. You can pick them all apart. Houston's rotation, Seattle's rotation, Texas's rotation. So I'm not sure, but Houston has a very dynamic club. Some young, brilliant players. And I just see them being the best of that group, ultimately, because I do believe they'll trade for someone at some point, whether it's one of the Rays pitchers, Quintana, Sonny Gray, whoever it might be, they'll get somebody else. And that's good stuff from one Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports and MLB Network. Time now to hear from another expert on this week in race baseball on the Major League Baseball front. When he came to Tropicana Field for opening day 2017, it was his 60th opening day. I'm talking about the dean of MLB writers from MLB.com, Hal Bodley. Hal, thanks for joining us. Happy Easter. Well, Neil, it's always a pleasure, and happy Easter to you. Thanks very much again for coming on. What did it mean to be now part of 60 opening days? Well, you know, it's been a nice journey. Uh, I've been very, very blessed uh, you know, I the hair's a little bit grayer. I walk a little bit slower, and uh, but I still have the great passion for the game. And to be able to think back to, to 1958, to that first game I covered, and and many of the other openers that uh, that I was able to cover over the years, it's uh, it's been really a great journey. Tell me a story or two about favorite opening days that you've covered, or stories that you remember from an opening day. Well, you know, you know, Neil, it's kind of hard. Everything kind of runs together, but. Uh, I think in 1958, when I got on the Silver Meteor to come to spring training in Clearwater, Florida to cover the Phillies, uh, that started everything. And then, of course, the opening day back at Connie Mack Stadium that year was very, very special because it was my first one. And I had to go back to the scorebook and look. It was Friday, April the 18th, 58, a night game against the Milwaukee Braves. And if you'll remember, they won the World Series in 1957. So they were coming back, and that was their first game in Philadelphia, a night game. And it was pretty good. The Phillies were pitching quite well. Uh, Bob Buell was pitching very, very well for the Braves. And it was scoreless in the sixth inning. Johnny Logan hit a grand slam to left field to give the Braves a 4 to nothing lead. The Phillies came back and scored a couple of runs. And coincidentally, I didn't know it at the time, but Harry Anderson, my wife's cousin, drove in those two runs for the Phillies. But uh, it was a great memory. And another one, if you'd like to hear about it, was mm-hmm. in 1981. Uh, I'd been covering the Phillies, Neil, for 23 years, and they had done nothing really. But in 1980, of course, they won the World Series, beating Kansas City. And opening night in 1981 was so special because five of the beat writers, the Phillies elected five of the beat writers, were getting World Series rings. And I was one of those beat writers, so it was so special. Steve Carlton pitched that night 5-1 to one over the Cardinals in 1981. Uh, he beat John Candelaria, and I want you to hear this. The game lasted two hours and four minutes, a complete game for Steve Carlton. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we haven't seen many of those unless Mark Burley was pitching in the last, uh, let's say, <laughs> right. decade. You know, the most interesting thing about your first opening day is that the season started on April the 18th. I mean, that I know there are more games in the schedule now, but it's not that many. I mean, it shows me how the game has changed from that regard, too, that you can begin on the 18th versus the 2nd or the 3rd of April. It really has, because it was a 154-game schedule, and the World Series started like the first week of October, and uh, it's really uh, you know, been extended quite a lot now with all the extra levels of playoffs and, and, and that. Yesterday, Jackie Robinson Day, of course, the 70th anniversary since he broke the barrier. Tell me, did you come across him very often in covering the game, and if so, are there any 
memorable moments that you got to speak with him or be part of a group that spoke with him? Well, you know, back uh, in 1958, he'd been retired for two years. Uh, that was my first year actually covering baseball. So I didn't get to cover him when he played for the Dodgers because he retired, of course, in 1956, uh, and he died a few years later. But I do have a great story to tell you. I did interview him just once uh, in the 1960s. I, I can't remember exactly uh, what we talked about. It was probably just a, an interview when he was making an appearance at, at a certain place. But my most memorable uh, Jackie Robinson story was April the 15th, 1997, Neil. That was the 50th anniversary. I'd been trying for about a year to get a sit-down interview with President Bill Clinton. I'd been able to talk to presidents prior to him, but uh, I hadn't been able to work out the interview with him. So they finally said, okay, you're a baseball guy. We'll have, it, have you do the interview at Shea Stadium before Jackie Robinson's number 42 is retired throughout baseball. Mm. So we went into a small room at Shea Stadium, the president and myself, and we talked a little bit about Jackie Robinson. And, you know, presidents historically have always phoned sports figures to congratulate them on outstanding and record-breaking achievements and that type of thing. And I said, Mr. President, what would you have said to Jackie Robinson had you called him? And, Neil, I'd love to play this tape for you sometime. He said, well, first of all, I would thank him, Clinton said. He said, even then, people knew this was something big, even people who didn't fully understand the implications of what he was really doing. But he thought that it was more important for all of society, the industries, and all of the things that the African-Americans were involved in in those days than just baseball. And he went on and on and on talked about it. And I have really remembered that for so long to be able to sit down with the president and talk about that. And then, of course, he went out on the field that night, and they retired number 42, and now we celebrate it 20 years later. Pretty cool stuff. And, and, you know, what would, what do you think, though? I mean, every year I think the same discussion you see in, in columns across the country. You know, the, the, the diversity of the game is great because of it, it's more global, but you do have such a smaller percentage of African Americans participating. Is there something that you would like to see as a guy who's covered the game to get that, back, that number back up? I really wouldn't. You know, I sit in the press box at Tropicana Field or other press boxes where I visit, and I look down into the stands and uh, sadly, you can almost count the number of African-American fans in the stands on one hand. I mean, there's very, very few. You, you just can't spot them. They just don't come to the game. I think I think that Commissioner Rob Manfred is doing a good thing with inner-city baseball and all the programs that Major League Baseball has to encourage uh, African-Americans to play the game. But, uh, you know, when, when Jackie broke in and then there was basically an influx of some of the great, great players who were African-Americans, and they're just not there now. They're not interested in the game. They're more interested in football and basketball. And I think it certainly is baseball's job, and I know that a lot of people are working on it to try to improve this. I would agree there. Tell me your take first couple weeks in the American League, um, a storyline that sticks out to you. For me, the start the Blue Jays have gotten onto on a negative sense is, is a bit of a surprise. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm a little worried about my buddy John Gibbons. He's one of my favorite managers in baseball, and uh, when you have such a dreadful start and, uh, you know, he's had some problems uh, in the past where they've talked about whether or not he's going to continue there. I sure hope he doesn't have to take the hit for this. But at Toronto, the the 2-9 and nine start is really a disaster for them. I talked to him actually last Sunday when they were in, uh, in Tropicana Field, and he, he said, we're just not getting key hits. We're pitching pretty well, not getting the key hits, and a lot of the veterans aren't coming through. And now Josh Donaldson's on the DL, and that's going to be a big problem for them. But I, I, I thought this would be one of the top three teams in, in the division this year. But uh, they're going to have to – you really turn it around. And uh, I think they, they miss a lot of the people that they let go this year. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bad story for them. 
No doubt. And I guess maybe equally surprising that Cleveland's under 500 with some of the additions they made, even with Kipnis out right now, and that I know it's two weeks, Minnesota and Detroit leading the division in the Central. I thought Cleveland could be maybe the best team in baseball in 2017, uh, maybe even better than the Cubs. Uh, they had such a great team last year, and they're better this year, but uh, maybe they're just uh, it's on a shakedown cruise, and when they get Kipnis back and, and they get the, you know, into warmer weather in Cleveland, that maybe they can you know, put it together. I think still, as, as Ken Rosenthal said earlier, I believe this is the best team in that division. How about the West? Um, how do you look at it? I mean, Houston, I guess they're breathing a sigh of relief. Carlos Correa got hit by a pitch on the hand. They're saying x-rays are negative. I mean, he's him and Springer are their franchise guys, and, and they made some really good veteran additions in the offseason. They did. They improved that ball club quite a lot. And in fact, I picked Houston to win that division, and uh, they're certainly showing that now, being 8-4 and four so far this year. And, uh, you know, I believe they're the, the best team in that division. I know you've been working on a lot of projects, and we see you at the ballpark a fair amount at Tropicana Field. Uh, you're working on it. Were you working on a novel last time we chatted? We were working on a novel, uh, Take Me Out to the Murder, and I'm, and I'm still working on it. It's kind of going a little bit slow, trying to figure out the, who to get murdered next at what ballpark and uh, how to pull it together, you know, in a James Patterson sort of way and have all the twists and turns. And for somebody who's never been involved in a novel, it's going a little bit slow, but it's a lot of fun, and I'm really challenged by it. Well, I hope you continue to enjoy the challenge. We continue to enjoy having you on our show, and uh, great to see you always at the ballpark and continued success. Thanks an awful lot, Neil. Again, that is Hal Bodley. He's a treasure in terms of individuals and also when it comes to writers in the game of baseball, and we're happy to have him in Tampa Bay and on our program today. And I want to thank Hal Bodley and all of our guests on today's show, starting with Tim Beckham as well as Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times, Mitch Lukovich, Rays Director of Minor League Operations, as well as one Ken Rosenthal, who joined us too, of course, of Fox Sports and MLB Network. If there's ever something you want to hear me here on the show, all you have to do is tweet me. You can do so at Neil Solons. Now, next week's program will include interviews with one Stephen Souza Jr. and much more. For producer Len Martez, I'm Neil Solon. Stay tuned. The pregame show is next. You're listening to the Rays Baseball Network.